All right, now let me turn your attention now to Hebrews chapter 10. We've got a lot to cover in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, I'll read the, those four verses, and then we'll pray and see what God's Word has to say to us. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin reading verse 1. <clears throat> For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the, blood, uh, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that by your spirit to the glory of your son Jesus, that you would encourage the hearts of believers, that you would convict the hearts of those that are not saved by grace through faith in Jesus and that Christ is honored as we walk through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Most of you here would agree that it is hard to leave what you know and walk into that which you don't know. It's, it's difficult to be away from what you've known your entire life and to step into a setting with no real guarantees, no clear security, to leave home, go off to school, or to leave home and go to the military... Be a single up in age and then fall in love and get married and you're accustomed to your way of life? To lose a career. Look out over this unknown vista. To have something go horribly wrong in your life where you lose someone that you've depended on for all of these years and wonder... What is the future going to look like? Instead of walking to the future, oftentimes people, our nature, uh, as people, just to revert back to what we know. Let's go back to what we're comfortable with. And that seems to be the danger that the people that would receive this letter for the very first time were facing. This is what we do. Let's get the context. What is Hebrews about? Let's get the context of this letter. This little letter is more like a sermon, and it is written to a small congregation of thoroughgoing Jewish Christians. Not just Christians, but Jewish Christians. It's important. Most of these Christians, because of the dating, we think the dating of the letter, most of these Christians came to Christ later in life. They were not necessarily born into Christian homes. They were Jewish a lot longer than they've been Christians. 
And on top of that, when you read the whole letter of Hebrews, you think, what's happening there that he wrote this letter? You read this letter and you find out that there's a persecution going on. And evidently, this persecution has developed to such a degree that Christians are dying and Jews are not. And since so many of them used to be Jewish, many of the members of the church that this was written to, many of those members are stepping away from the church and fading back into what they know, Judaism. And this whole letter is written by a person that is attempting to persuade people that are fearful trying to persuade them that Jesus Christ is better than any temptation that you might have, any thoughts that you might have of going back to an old lifestyle, even a familiar and loving lifestyle, that Jesus Christ is better than anything that your former life has to offer. And here in chapter 10, he brings this argument down to a point. And the author of this letter, he takes a dagger and he puts it into the heart of their old religion. That old religion that was so solidly based and so dependent on the Old Testament, the law of God, the writings of Moses. And he's saying to them, in essence, you think that if you're going to obey God's law, if you keep the Ten Commandments, that that's going to get you to heaven. You think because you know that and, and, and you feel safe there. And verse 1, he tells us the law, it's a shadow of something good that's coming. The law, the writings, the prophets, the sacrifices, the rituals, the days, the liturgy, all of it is a shadow. It's not evil. It was given to us by God. It is certainly good. It's not contrary to the will of God. It's just not the good thing. Let me see if I can illustrate it on, on, on a way that we can understand it. If you call me up and say, Clint, let's go to Krispy Kreme, and we ride by, and there is the Hot Donuts Now sign. I see that sign, and already I'm so hungry. Right into the drive-thru and you make the order, because I don't like to go through the drive-thru, I don't want to talk to somebody in the box, so you make the order, and they give us this flat box with 12 donuts lined up, and drop it into your lap, and what you do is you throw the donuts out the window, hand me the box, and say, Clint, eat that. What you've given me is the shell, not the good thing. If you take me to Chick-fil-A, I don't eat breakfast on Sunday morning, so I got to... You take me to Chick-fil-A, and what I like there at Chick-fil-A is their box lunch because you get the chicken sandwich, and instead of the fries, you get the chips. I like them better. I don't know why. And with that is a, that chocolate chip cookie with some oatmeal or something in it. And you get that box. They pass it through the drive through window into your lap, and you throw all that food out, and you hand me the box, and you say, here, Clint, eat that. I don't want the box. I want the good thing. Now, on a higher, holier, more profound way. The argument here that the writer is making, the argument of the advent, is that there is something good coming. That the coming of Jesus Christ is the good thing, and the entire Bible, the whole thing, points to 
this good thing coming. What is that good thing? We, we know it as the virgin birth of Jesus. We speak of His perfect and obedient life here on earth, His love for people, His companionship to sinners, His healing of those that hurt, His compassion on those that were struggling, His empathy for those that couldn't get it right, His righteousness, His death on the cross, we even call that even today Good Friday, His keeping the Sabbath on the Saturday, thereby keeping the entire law, His resurrection on Sunday, His ascension into heaven, but the fact that He saves all sinners that come to Him and believe. And this passage, the writer is saying, don't go back. What you knew back in the Old Testament, that's pointing to Jesus, and He came to rescue sinners. The whole Old Testament, I mean, Kyler so brilliantly did this last Sunday, took us to Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, and there you have the promise, the Old Testament begins by, by pointing to Jesus. And right after Genesis 3.15, when the curse is given to Adam and Eve, and they are naked and they know it, God kills animals to cover them with skin, thereby pointing to the fact that something has to die to cover. Genesis 14, the patriarch Abraham, he meets a a murky person named Melchizedek, who is a king of Salem and a priest, and thereby pointing to, even in Genesis, a better king and priest coming. Genesis chapter, two, Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac, he sac I even have this statue on my desk in my office. Abraham called to sacrifice his son Isaac, and the ram caught in the thicket that God would provide a substitute pointing to Jesus Christ coming. Take, just take a run through the Old Testament. Go to Joseph and see him sacrificing for his brothers. See the Passover lamb. See the, the rock in the desert that flowed with water that is Christ. See the serpent lifted up. It's Christ. I mean, even go to Judges. My goodness, I was thinking about, <clears throat> I was thinking about preaching Judges in 2021, and then I read it. I thought, I'm not preaching that. <laughs> Maybe we'll wait to 2022 or something to go through Judges. But even when you go through the Judges, you see there, even on someone like Jephthah, who makes this terrible rash vow and sacrifices his daughter, in a strange way, it lets us know there is a more perfect and good vow, a true sacrifice coming. Uh, the whole Old Testament, my, my point is you can find all of these. The whole Old Testament is their shadows. And shadows are not the substance. The box isn't the good thing. The substance is Christ. And Christ came to rescue sinners. Christ came to rescue sinners. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's just go through this passage and walk through and see how it is that he rescues us and what He rescues us from. There are a couple of things I want to point out. I'll start with the first one, number one. Notice that Christ rescues us from the merry-go-round of life. The merry-go-round of life. Going round and around. A merry -go You're familiar with the merry-go-round, right? You sit there on the merry-go-round and you just experience the same old thing, ride around and around and call it fun. Or when I was a kid, you'd go to a park and uh, they had that thing to spin around and around. You get some kid to hang on the rail and go as fast as you can, you can throw him off. Merry-go-round. 
over and over. That's, that's the field, at least, in verse 1. Let me read verse one, run, 1 to you. The writer says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, listen to the repetitive nature. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See how it feels like the same sacrifices continually offered every year, probably pointing to the Day of Atonement. You do this every single year, this high and holy day. And this high and holy day, the highest of the highest and holiest of the holiest in the entire Old Testament is having no effect on you. It's not changing you. This routine is ineffective in your life. I mean, you can even drop down if you wanted to to verse 8 and see in verse 8 all of the uh, different sacrifices and offerings and sin offerings listed. He li- just the whole, he's saying the whole thing, the whole system given to us by God is set up for one reason. It is designed to point to Jesus Christ and His coming. All those animals being sacrificed, every single one of them pointed to Christ. That pointing is a reminder that the salvation is not in the animals sacrificed. The salvation is in the one that is coming. What Israel saw, the people of God, what they saw in the Old Testament is a shape of the good thing to come. That good thing is Jesus. Why did it have to be Jesus? Because God is only satisfied with the sacrifice of His Son. And when Jesus dies on the cross... He takes, God takes his righteousness and puts it on us because the righteousness of Jesus is the only righteousness that meets God's standard. We don't meet his standard. And Christ comes to, this is what Christmas is. Christ comes to rescue us from this treadmill. This treadmill of trying. He rescues us from that treadmill of trying to gain His honor and love and acceptance and brings us to the cross of Jesus and puts us in the place of grace. Christ came to rescue sinners. And if you're watching today or you're here today, you should hear, He'll he'll rescue you. Let's keep looking at verse 1. Let's see if we can mash a little more out of verse 1. Number 2, let me show you something. Christ not only rescues from the merry-go-round of life, number two, Christ rescues us from our flaws. Flaws. You are not flawless. We do have flaws. Let me, let me show you what I mean in verse one. You can, feel, you can feel the futility of dead religion in verse one. Or you can feel, if you're not religious, a dead non-religion. Look what the text says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, slow down, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Make perfect. Y'all might want to circle that phrase, teleos. It's the Greek word that means to complete. It can't fulfill. It can't satisfy. That, That religion that you're in, it can't get you there. Now, let's just talk about where we are today in 2020, almost 21, So much that is passed off as Christianity today is some kind of of behavioral management. 
so much of what I see in Christian circles and I see it in social media and hear it on the preachers. So much of it is, is seeking to help people cope with their situation, to help you get a little ahead in life, to, to deal with strife, to live happier. And, and look, all of those things are great. But those things are not the good things. Those things, if that's all you get, then it leaves you still dead inside. It, it wears off. And, and what this writer is doing, he's warning them, don't go back to a religion. There are three R's, if you like things alliterated, uh, that, that can be distracting and keep you from seeing the good thing that is Jesus. Religion, that can really throw people off. Religion, recreation, that takes your time away. And relationships that distract you from loving God most. And none of those things that are all good things, the Christian religion understood rightly is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Recreation employed rightly can be great for your mind and soul even. Relationships that are centered in the Lordship of Jesus are wonderful and healthy. But they can't remove our biggest problem the biggest problem that people have, that you have, that I have, is the sin that separates us from God. You go and read Jesus, and he can't be a good teacher if he's not also Savior. When you read what Jesus said as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you go and read that ver uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. At the end of chapter 5, after he gives the Beatitudes, Jesus says something startling. Jesus says, you are to be perfect as my Father is perfect. We run into a problem immediately when Jesus says that. Why? Because we can't be perfect. I mean, we even use the phrase, right, when we mess up. We even use the phrase, well, I mean, nobody's perfect. We use that to excuse our flaws and to bring us into commonality with other people to say, hey, I know, them, I, know I made a mistake here, but nobody's perfect, when actually, when you read the Bible, that is the problem we have, is that nobody is perfect. A negative way to say that is everybody has sinned. And the problem you've got is you aren't perfect. And, and we need the perfect one, Jesus, to cover us. And that's Advent. That's the coming of Jesus Christ. He came to rescue, he came to rescue sinners. If that's not enough, let's go to verse 2. Let me see if I can give you a third thing to consider. Consider this with me. Uh, I'll make it a little more serious in verse 2. Number 3, Christ rescues us from our filth. Filth. F-I-L-T-H. You don't say it much. You don't like to think of yourself as filthy. In fact, we're very clean people. Some of us are obsessively clean. Maybe washing your hands more times than you need to, and you're using so, so much of... Uh, so much of that sanitizer, which is great. Keep using the sanitizer. I'm all for it. Rub down in the sanitizer. Because we don't want to be filthy. We don't think of ourselves as filthy. We don't like people with filthy mouths. We don't want to wear filthy clothes. We don't want to live in filthy homes. We don't want to drive filthy cars. But for some reason, like spiritual hoarders, We've gotten strangely accustomed to the 
filth that just keeps piling up around us. And layer after layer comes over our lives and it seeps into our souls like the, like the, like the frog in the kettle. The water gets warm and warm and warm and it starts to boil and it kills the frog who didn't even know it. So many people living in this world, so many of us live in a society that has gotten to the point where we, we don't even recognize the filth. And this verse, verse 2, this verse is a promise that Christ can and will rescue us in a way that nothing else can. Verse 2, let's look at it. It's actually a rhetorical question. Verse 2, as a rhetorical question, is written as a question to make a point. And the question is essentially saying that if the sacrificial system worked, if it worked, if it could fully cleanse people, then why do we have to keep doing it over and over and over again? Let me show it to you in verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased? When you hear us talk about the finished work of Christ, the one-time work of Christ, Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father, contrast that with the language here. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? If, if the sacrificial system worked, if it could actually cleanse people, then it wouldn't have to be repeated. And the point that he's making is, that's a shadow. Don't go back to a shadow. That's a shadow. That is a, that is a pointer. That's an arrow. An arrow that points to Christ. So when we think about the sacrifices God gave them in the Old Testament to the people of Israel to remind them that His wrath is such that it needs to be appeased. And those sacrifices were there to remind that every single sin is calling for judgment. And the fact that He doesn't send judgment and kill everybody is an act of mercy. It's reminding us that, that God has once again temporarily held back His judgment. But the sacrifices don't actually do anything for the sinner. They're all pointed to the judgment of God. The sacrifices leave the sinner still in his or her state. He's still a sinner. So, so if you're stuck there, if you go back there, you might think that God is holding back His judgment, but the truth is you're still in your sin. You're still filthy. You're still, the brokenness is still there. We need help there. And the point of verse 2 is the coming of Jesus, the, the advent of Christ, not only has effect permanently removing the wrath of God. So when you hear the gospel and you think Jesus dying on the cross in the place of sinners that has turned the wrath of God away from the sinner onto Jesus, and thereby He died in our place, taking the punishment, and the wrath of God is gone. Judgment of God is gone. That is a wonderful truth. That, that, that the sacrifice of Jesus removes the wrath of God from His children, that the death of Jesus on the cross also has an effect on the sinner. Whereby the sinner who puts her faith in Jesus, now becomes a saint. I mean, that's the point of the rhetorical question in verse 2. You see that phrase? Go, go down there with me to verse 2. And notice the phrase, 
the consciousness of sin. You see that? You would no longer, if, if it worked, you would no longer have any consciousness of sin, this, this idea of right and wrong. And, and here's the point of what the writer is saying. This is what Christ does for his people. It's not just the turning away of God's anger from you. It's not just that he took that away and now God loves you. It's not just that he took the righteous judgment of God and thank God that he did so you don't have to fear death and hell and judgment that when bad things happen to you, it's not God judging you. He judged your sins on the cross of Christ. If something happens to you, though, when, when you become a believer, what Jesus did for you on the cross, something happens in you. When you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, the virtues of that sacrifice on the cross are not only applied to the judgment of God, taking it away, they are applied to our souls, to our conscience, to our minds. Does something to the inside of us. This is the language we use when we, when we talk about being renewed or when you talk about being cleansed or when you talk about being forgiven or you talk about being converted or you talk about being changed or you talk about being made alive from being dead in sin, or you talk about being freed up from some terrible sin, or you talk about being unbound. Verse 2, to, to no longer have any consciousness of sin means that you don't fear. I'm asking you to walk in your life. If, if you're a Christian, walk it without fear. You're not afraid of hell. You're not afraid of dying. You're not afraid of judgment. You're not, you're not afraid that you're condemned? This is what religion leaves you feeling, the condemnation. Christ gives us this, this full recognition of... I mean, isn't that what Paul said in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2? Paul, when he speaks of what Christ has done for us, he says, There is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from this old law, the law of sin and death. Your conscience, con means with, science, knowledge, with knowledge. Your with knowledge, is your conscience is the eye of your soul. And here's what happens when you get saved. The Spirit of God, through the love of God, awakens me to my own sin. That's what the law of God does. It awakens me to my own sin and that gives me a guilty conscience. That guilty conscience makes me look to Christ and what He's done on the cross. When we look to Christ, when we run to Christ, there at the cross we are rescued, we are cleansed. That's what Advent is about. Jesus came to rescue sinners. I'd like to put a, a fourth point on that third one, because I, I think they go together. Let me give you a similar point, maybe different enough to stand alone. Here's a fourth thing I want you to see in the passage in verse 3. Notice it with me, that Christ rescues us from our memory. What we remember. What you remember. Memory is a, memory is a tough thing. And some memories get branded into your heart to such a degree that maybe the pain's gone, but the scar is still there. And what Christ does, He rescues us from our memories. I mean, you see the stab? Look at verse 3. It's a short stab. 
verse 3 is. It probably has the Day of Atonement in view, the Jewish Day of Atonement. Let me read it to you, verse 3. But in these sacrifices, in this old religion, what you're thinking about going back to, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. All you're doing is being reminded you're a sinner. You go back there, that's what you get. Your memory. Now, the truth is, you take the entire Old Testament... So you take the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, all of that put into place. It is there to help people remember. Thank God that it gives us help remembering. We remember that God is ineffably holy, that God hates sin, that man is a full-blown sinner. The Old Testament teaches that that sin leads to death. We read in the Old Testament, because we're sinners, leaded that have been led to death because of our sin, we need a substitute to hold back the wrath of God. There is the sacrificial system. That sacrificial system, in its flawed way, points to the perfect nature of Christ. And we are called as Christians to look at the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and the whole Bible. That's what the whole Bible is about. The whole Bible is saying to you and I, look to Christ. And the terrible thing brought up in verse 3 is the fact that all religion can do is tell you, keep looking back at your sin. Even the best of religion, all it can do is remind you of your sin. Memory is a powerful thing when you've sinned grievously. When you've sinned in such a way that it stays with you, or you've been sinned against it and it stays with you. If you've sinned in a really grievous way, if you've been sinned against in a terrible way, Especially if it's, a, if it's of a sexual nature. The memory of that sin is hard to get through. It stays there. It's branded. And, and it can really be debilitating and for someone that's seeking to walk with Christ and to keep thinking about that sin. You can receive a lot of help from a really brilliant lady named Rosaria Butterfield. She's written a couple of books. One book she wrote, her first one, was entitled Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria Butterfield, not only, she didn't just struggle with same-sex attraction. She lived her life as a lesbian and promoting that. She was proud of that. And God miraculously, go, go read the book, God miraculously delivered her. She confessed that sin, turned her life over to Christ. She was radically converted, and this book is that testimony, and it's a great testimony. But one of the things she talks about is memory. And this is what religion does. Reminds you. Verse 3, sin. You're reminded every year. Day of atonement, need atonement, sinner. This atonement is here, it keeps the wrath of God away, but you're still a sinner. Come forward to the New Testament. Here's Jesus living perfectly, coming to the end of his earthly ministry. Before he goes to the cross, he has one last meal with his disciples. Jesus came and lived perfectly, and he would die. And before he did, he left us with one tangible thing to help us Remember, we now call that the Lord's Supper. 
And this is what Jesus told his disciples. You've heard that those, that day of atonement is there to remind you of your sin. Now I want to change that. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. You do this and remember me. Not your sin. Me. Grace. This cup is the new covenant, which is given in my blood. And every time you drink it, I want you to remember not your sin. Me. You see, with one of those, one of those things has you look back at your sin. You're a terrible sinner. Look at your sin. Remember your guilt. With the other, Jesus says, look back at me. See the cross. Remember the grace that the blood of Jesus covers me. You see, you need to remember that Jesus came to rescue sinners. I'll give you one last one in verse 4. And that is that Christ came, Christ came to rescue us from hell. I mean, isn't that the point of the passage? It's, it's made emphatically in verse 4. You read it and it's just straightforward. Notice what the text says. It points to our only hope in verse 4. The writer says, it is impossible. Don't go back to that religion. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Which is a strange thing, and if you, you, you like to study Hebrews, just run your hand up the page or over the page to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, and look at the very end of verse 22 in Hebrews chapter 9. And the text says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Then you get to chapter 10, verse 4, and we're told it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So sins can't be taken away unless there's some bloodshed, but you let that bloodshed in religion and it won't take away your sin. Which reminds us that typologically, symbolically, the entire Old Testament and sacrificial system is pointing forward to one and only one. One hero in the shadows who would come and rescue his people from hell. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we sing? My accuser makes the claim that I should die for my offense. I point him to that rugged frame where I found life at Christ's expense. See from his hands and his feet and his side, the fountain that's flowing deep and wide. Oh, he did shout the victory. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. Christ came to rescue sinners and he'll rescue you. He does that at the cross. The law of God is a beautiful thing. It is given to us by God, but it is a shadow of the good thing. That good thing is Jesus. I pray that you'll give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Will you join me as we pray together? I want you to bow your heads and think with me for just a moment before we sing. For those of you that are watching online or, or maybe here in the room, and you've been coming to church your whole life, but you've never had a saving faith. It's a, it's a different kind of faith, a saving faith in Jesus. There's nothing changed in you. You're still in your sin. I'm asking you to come to Jesus and trust the grace that God gives us.
at the cross of Christ. For the majority of you, I, I just want you to think, this is what we believe, this is what we trust, this is, this is what's going to make it so that you can walk out of here with confidence and not afraid and, and security that, that it's the blood of Jesus that speaks for you, that Jesus has rescued you, that you're going to be okay because of Jesus. So, so as I lead us in prayer, you, you continue to place your confidence in what God has done for us in Jesus. Father, thank you for the grace you have given us in Jesus. Thank you for Advent, for the good thing to come that is Christ. And I pray that you would make the blessings of Christ real to your people. Give us confidence and encouragement. Use us for your glory. Be honored in how we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and we sing together.